Okay, this is it. Peter, 2 Peter. Finish the epistle of 2 Peter just to uh, make you aware of what's coming up. So next week, Pastor Brian's going to bring a message from 1 John, is that correct? Right. And then uh, Thanksgiving message. And then Sean's going to get an opportunity to preach. And then we'll have our Christmas. Uh, that'll bring us to Advent. And we're going to, I think I've got it worked out what we'll be doing. Uh, but I'm not going to say yet because I could be wrong. <laughs> so uh, thank you, Gary, for reading the passage. As you said, this is the last Peter's final words in what uh, this is his final letter. If you remember from chapter one, he wrote, I think it right as long as, as I'm in the body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will soon will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to me. As death approaches, Peter seeks to stir up the church, and he does this by reminding them and us of the things they've learned from him and from the other apostles. And I pray that we, uh, uh, that we would be stirred up as well. I pray that we would continue to be stirred up by Peter's words today, and I pray that we've been stirred up in the past. Now, unlike previous messages, if you've been through our study in 2 Peter, I usually do a pretty lengthy beginning with uh, reviewing what's gone before, but I figure if you haven't got it yet, too late now. Last, last message. Instead, I'm going to seek to put these final verses in context as we go through them. As, as Peter concludes, he touches on three main themes in these final verses, all of which he's mentioned before. The themes include salvation, scripture, and sanctification. Thus, the title of the message Salvation, Scripture, and Sanctification. And so we begin with salvation, the purpose of the Lord's patience. The beginning of verse 15 flows from verse 14. 15 could have been in last week's message, this beginning part, but so it kind of broke there, uh, but I included in this week's message. Uh, So let's back up to verse 14. In verse 14, Peter begins by writing, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these... If you remember last week, Peter focused on uh, the day of the Lord, the day Christ will return, and he will bring both destruction and salvation. He will destroy the heavens and the earth. Don't don't hold on to the things that are here because they're gone. They're going to be gone. And he will punish the ungodly. And he will create a new heavens and a new earth saving the godly, saving those who trust in Him. And to those, the godly, those who trust in Him, Peter says, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. As you wait for the Lord's return, which is what we're doing, be diligent to live lives of holiness and godliness. He said that in the verse prior that you will be found by him without spot or blemish. Un, un, what's the word? Above reproach, that's the word. You'll be found above reproach. Then, in verse 15, Peter adds, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. This is a reminder. It's a, it's a stirring 
that the delay in the Lord's return is because of his patience, his mercy. He's waiting for people to be saved. That's what we saw in verse 9 of chapter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason Christ has not returned is to give time for all of God's people to repent and be saved. However, Here in verse 15, he's not explaining why Christ has yet to return, as he did in verse 9. Instead, he's giving his readers instructions, some stirring. This is some more stirring based on that delay. While we're waiting for the day of the Lord, for Christ's return, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Count, consider, think about reckon the fact that the patience of the Lord means salvation. What I think Peter is saying is that along with, or as part of living without spot or blemish and at peace, we're also to be thinking about and living based on the fact that now is the time of salvation. As we wait for Christ's return, consider why He hasn't returned yet. Because this is a time that people can be saved. This is a time of salvation. We need to understand that the time we live in between uh, the first and second coming of Christ is meant to serve a purpose. At His first coming, by His sacrificial death on the cross, which will celebrate, Don will lead us in communion, will celebrate that death of Christ for us the Savior, Jesus Christ, in that He created a way to God. He created the only possible way to God. He provided the only way of salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father but by Me. And right now, in the time we live, the time Peter lived, he's being patient. And the way of God Uh, And the way to God, by grace, through faith, is wide open. But when He returns, judgment will come. uh, And that way will be closed. And the time of salvation will be passed. This is the time when people can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, don't waste your time. Your life... Don't waste your life in the temporal things of this world, but use your time wisely as, as Paul says, as an ambassador of Christ. Declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world. Call people to repent and be reconciled to God. Proclaim that the only way of salvation is open right now. Today is the day of salvation. Warn that we don't know When the way will be closed, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Allow the urgency, really, I think Peter is giving, of these words to sink in. Knowing that God's patience will not last forever. The day of the Lord is coming. Therefore, let us be people who declare the way of salvation while there's still time. And that brings us to our second point. Peter links this salvation as the purpose of God's patience with Scripture, the writings of the Apostle Paul. Verse 15, 
and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. We just talked about that. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. I mean, there's so much here. I, I, I had a little thing about Paul and Peter. He's calling him a beloved brother, even though they had their little disagreement. Reconciliation has taken place. But apparently, prior to Peter's second letter, the one we're studying right now, Paul also wrote to these same people along similar lines. And notice that Paul writes according to the wisdom given him. Peter understands that Paul's words don't come from his mind alone. But God gives him wisdom to think, uh, to write. And what Paul writes agrees with what Peter has just written, which implies Peter has also been given wisdom from God. Now, we don't know the specific writings of Paul that Peter's speaking about, but we do know that Paul confirms, writes similar things to Peter. Peter writes, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And in Romans 2.4, Paul writes, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Both Peter and Paul teach that God, God's withholding of judgment is an act of forbearance, an act of mercy, an act of patience, and should be counted as giving added time for repentance and salvation. And in 2 Corinthians 6.2, Paul wrote, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So by calling in Paul's support, Peter shows that there is agreement among the apostles. The false teachers that are plaguing the church may reject the return of Christ, saying, as we saw two weeks ago, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But the apostles of Jesus Christ are united. Christ is coming. And the time while He delays is for the salvation of souls. We shouldn't be rushing it. The longer He waits, the more will be saved. Then in verse 16, Peter continues to speak about Paul's writings. And in this verse, in verse 16, I want to point out three things we can learn from what Peter says. First, Paul's letters are canon. They're scripture. I use a C because the next two are going to be C's. Okay? Paul wrote 13 of the 13 or 14, depending on the what you think about Hebrews, of the 27 books of the New Testament. And Peter tells us that they are part of the biblical canon, their scripture. Let me back up to verse 15 and, and let's see this. Let's see his thought process. And count the patience of the Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in, these, in them of these matters. So the wisdom that Paul receives from God extends to all his letters when he speaks on these matters, that is, matters of salvation and the return of Christ and beyond, the gospel. Peter then adds, There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, there are several things we're going to look at in this verse, but the first thing I want to point out, first thing I want us to see, is that Peter puts Paul's letters, his writings, in the same category as other scripture, which 
at this time would refer specifically to the Old Testament Scriptures. Remember that Peter already affirmed the inspiration of the Old Testament. In chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, he writes, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter taught that prophetic Scripture, and I think he would include all of the Old Testament, was inspired by God as men were moved by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, when he puts Paul's letters in the same category, he's claiming equal inspiration for the authority of Paul. Peter confirms what Paul claimed for himself. Paul said in his own teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, and we, himself, I think he's speaking of the apostles, those that are with him, impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. As Peter said earlier, Paul understood that his writings were not based on his own human wisdom, but he received wisdom. He received instruction, inspiration from the Spirit of God. So Peter and Paul, Peter and Paul himself put Peter's writings, excuse me, Paul's writings. I get that. Peter and Paul, Peter and Paul. Why couldn't they be Peter and George? You know, it could be easier. Anyway, Peter and Paul. Uh, Paul's writings in the same category as Old Testament Scripture. They are in the inspired Word of God. And even though Peter is specifically addressing the writings of Paul, I believe this extends to the writings of all the apostles and those who wrote for them. For example, Mark is thought to have been, he wrote the Gospel of Mark, but with Peter's backing, if you will, with Peter's testimony. And why does this matter? This verse shows us that the apostles themselves understood that their writings, the Gospels, the Epistles, were authoritative and inspired, just like the Old Testament. They understood that God was inspiring them to write a new covenant, a new testament, which establishes establishes for us that all Scripture, Old and New Testament, are crucial for the life of the believer. The whole Bible is the very Word of God. It is how God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. We do not worship the Bible, but we worship and honor and praise and glorify the God who reveals Himself through the pages of Scripture. It, the Bible, the Scripture, the Word of God, is the inspired Word of God. As Paul wrote to Timothy, all Scripture... Old and New Testament is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is why we at Bridges uh, rely on Scripture. Our second, what does that say? We glorify God and then we, that's one of our core values. It's like foundational our core values, to lead, we, we rely on Scripture to lead us, to guide us, to teach us, to instruct us, to correct us, to reprove us in all matters. This is why every Sunday, the focus of this service, both the songs we sing, the messages, is not human wisdom. It's not what, what I think. It's not what we think. It's not what I think you need, but on what 
the Word of God reveals. In the preface to his uh, standard sermons, John Wesley wrote, I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over a great gulf, till a few moments hence I am no more even, no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. Now, if you didn't quite get that, get this. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me this book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unis, unius libri. I should just let that go. A man of one book. I don't speak Latin. Sorry. Oh, that we might be a people of one book. As David wrote in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The apostles are united with each other and with the Old Testament, uh, uh, with the Old Testament in one great inspired book from God. The more you read it, the more you study it, the more you meditate on it, the more you memorize it, the more you will see with the eyes of God. However, even though or because what Paul writes and all of Scripture is inspired, second point we see some from verse 16, Scripture can be complex. There are some things... In them, Paul's writings, that are hard to understand. And this difficulty in understanding this com the complex nature uh, of Scripture is not limited to Paul's writings, okay? There are hard to understand things throughout Scripture. Can I get amen? There's Daniel, right? Remember him? I'm just, the books we've looked at, Romans had some parts. We haven't tackled Revelation yet. I'm not sure if that's on the calendar anytime soon. And even 2 Peter. There were some, there's some difficult things to understand here. If you spent any time at all reading the Bible, you've discovered this. And probably there's been times when you were either reading the Bible on your own or listening to a sermon, and you say or think, why couldn't God have just made this easier to understand? What's the deal? Well, Scripture doesn't answer that question directly, but I think uh, we, in humility, can figure it out. First, we should note that Peter, who was an apostle himself, who lived at the same time in the same culture and spoke the same language as Paul, still thought Paul's writings and certainly other Scripture were sometimes hard to understand. So the fact that, that we are, are more separated from Scripture in time and language and culture than Peter would make it even a little more difficult for us to understand. So that partially answers the question for us. But why are there some things that were hard for even Peter and us to understand? Well, we need to think about the nature of the Bible, the nature of Scripture. Again, it's the inspired word of God. It comes through men, 
but from the mind, from the wisdom of God. So Scripture is God, the eternal, ever-present, always-existent, Alpha and Omega, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, revealing Himself to creatures, humanity, created beings, fortunately created in His image, so we have some hope, and therefore we should expect some difficulty. Some difficulty in fully understanding what God's mind reveals about Himself, His infinite self, to us finite beings. As God proclaimed through the prophet Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And because of the vast gap between the mind, the thoughts of God, and the mind, the thoughts of you and me, Scripture will sometimes be hard to understand. Now notice Peter says Scripture can be hard to understand. He doesn't say it's impossible to understand. And this is good news for us. When we come to a difficult passage, when we listen to a difficult sermon... We should not throw up our hands and say, we should never throw up our hands and say, well, this is just too hard for me. This is above my pay grade. I can't go there. We are, to the best of our ability, with the many resources available to us, we are to seek to rightly understand what the Bible says, what God means, what the authors meant who were inspired by God. And we should do that with the whole Bible, not just simple passages. That's one of the reasons I believe it's imperative for believers to read through the entire Bible. Whether it takes you five years or one year or... Sean's getting us food. Where'd he go? I think he just did it in 90 days. Can you imagine? I think he did it once in 30 days and he just did it again in 90 days. Oh, for retirement. Hallelujah. Just kidding. No, it takes more than retirement. Uh, We should be people who read through and seek to understand all of God's Word. And that's why I believe it's important to preach through not just the clear and simple passages of Scripture, but entire books of the Bible. When you preach through a book, which we just did with Peter, which we've done with Romans and lots of others, it's difficult to avoid the hard-to-understand passages. I try. No, I don't. And these passages can often be the most rewarding part of Scripture, the most rewarding part of your study. As the author of Hebrews writes, for everyone who lives on milk, easy, simple to understand teachings, passages, is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food, the deeper and surely more difficult to understand passages, is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There's great reward in taking in the meat, the hard-to-chew portions of Scripture. Therefore, as you personally study the Word, and as I study and then preach the Word, we must seek to take in all of what God is revealing. Knowing that sometimes the Word of God coming from the mind of God, will be complex, will be difficult to understand, and therefore we must engage our minds 
in the sermon or in the study. And I would just point out that this, this I think, is becoming increasingly more difficult in our culture. We live in a time that's filled with simple, mind-numbing forms of communication, things we call entertainment. It used to be just TV and movies, uh, which were bad enough. But now, with high-speed broadband internet available at your fingertips, you've been provided with an almost infinite amount of mindless content. That's progress. Yay. And this has certainly had an effect on us, right? As we become more and more engaged with the simple, quite frankly, the easy to understand, the no depth, the things that take no real thought at all, funny cat videos. How much time do you waste on those things? Or the most viewed YouTube video of all time. Any guesses what it is? C.S. Lewis's uh, lectures, no, it's not, I was just kidding. It's, uh, any guesses? What did you say? No, I don't know what you're talking about. It's uh, Pink Fong's Baby Shark. As the grandfather of five now, that is one of the most mind-numbing things that you can come across. I have a hard time just not singing it right now because it's been in my head so many times. And as, we draw, as we're drawn more and more into this mindless world, we become less and less able to think clearly and soundly and critically. And I'm not saying baby shark wipes our brains, but the constant barrage of mindless content we become less able to take in and, and ponder the deep things, to work through them, to analyze them, to think critically, to do anything that takes any real thought in, in many areas of our life, by the way, but especially what we're talking about here today, the Word of God. My point is, we need to realize this. We need to understand that when we study the Word of God, when we listen to a sermon, especially one involving a difficult passage, we may need to put some effort into understanding what the Word of God truly means. And I need to put some effort into communicating to people who are not used to difficult to understand things. Speaking about this with regards to TV only, way back in 1982, John Piper wrote, what this means for us preachers is that we must improve our ability to communicate effectively and hold attention with no antics, no stringed orchestras, no violence, and no sex. But it does not mean that we can abandon our calling to preach the whole counsel of God. And therefore, it should be expected that preaching will sometimes be the most demanding thing you hear all week. I can't see how it would be otherwise unless I make it easy, unless I make easy what the apostles couldn't. So the apostles are inspired by God, and they're, they're still having uh, trouble making this easy to understand. So we both, we need to do our part without compromising the truth and integrity of God's word. 
I need to do my best to communicate to a a 21st century internet, entertainment-oriented audience, and you need to do your best to not be those people. No. You need to do your best to understand and apply even hard passages from the Word of God. And you say, that's too hard. I try. Well, let me point out a couple things uh, you can do to make it easier, okay? First, very, very practical. You can go to bed at a reasonable time on Saturday night. Maybe today's sermon is a little more easy to understand because hopefully you got an extra hour of sleep last night. I don't know. Maybe you just stayed up an extra hour, watched an extra hour of TV. Also, as 21st century English-speaking Christians, we're blessed with help that comes from others in the body of Christ. Others who've studied Scripture for years. Others who know the language and the culture of the Bible, at least as well as we can today. Or we can look back and read others who lived closer to that time. Others who've written commentaries and study Bibles and Greek and Hebrew dictionaries. As well as those who are gifted by God in understanding and explaining His Word. We need to avail ourselves to the resources that God has given us. But even more important, more important than getting good sleep or using helpful resources, we've all been given the greatest helper of all. To his disciples, Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. The Spirit is our helper and teacher in all things, but especially, I believe, the Word of God. Therefore, as we seek to understand Scripture, whether it seems difficult or not, we need to approach every passage not only with alertness, and the resources we have, but in humility, in the power of God's Spirit. A great prayer before you read or study the Word of God would be, Father, your thoughts are so much higher than mine. So I come to you in humility and ask that by the power of your Spirit, you help me to rightly understand and apply what you reveal in your Word, which I'm about to read. Come to the Word knowing that you have the Spirit of God. The one who inspired it can illuminate it for you. And this doesn't mean, so we're clear, that the Spirit will magically cause you to understand difficult passages. Peter, who received the Spirit, I mean, his Spirit reception is recorded in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. He still found some of Paul's writings hard to understand. So it's not like a Uh, All of a sudden, it all makes sense. What it does mean is that as you make every effort to understand and apply the Word of God, the Spirit will help you. He'll teach you. He'll give you clarity of thought and insight into what God has revealed. He'll give you help through resources. He'll give you brothers and sisters in Christ you can talk about it with. And this is especially crucial because of what some, of the, some do with these difficult passages. This is the third thing Peter tells us in verse 16. Scripture can be contorted. Verse 16, again, there are some things in them, Paul's writings, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. 
Peter says that the ignorant, the unlearned, those that don't take the time, the unstable, those who are not uh, willing, who, who not who are not willing to put in the effort to understand the hard things, but instead uh, they twist Paul's writings and all of Scripture to their own destruction. This corresponds to what Peter says about the false teachers in chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there are false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves Swift destruction. Same idea. The false teachers who for both uh, moral and intellectual reasons, I don't want my life to change. I want to do what I want to do. And I really don't want to think about this. Are unwilling to make effort to understand the truth of Scripture. And therefore they just twist it. They twist the word into what Peter calls destructive heresies. Heresies. Things that are divergent from what the apostles have taught, what the Word of God teaches, which deny Christ and bring about their own destruction. And this means seeking the right interpretation of Scripture is a matter of great importance. Now that's not to say that well-meaning, spirit-empowered Christians will never differ on the meaning of a difficult passage. But it is to say that when, when faced with a difficult passage, or any passage... We must resist the temptation to twist it into what we want it to mean instead of in humility seeking to the best of our ability the correct interpretation. And this is of utmost importance when it comes to the nature of Jesus Christ. They're taking these scriptures, they're twisting them in such a way that they can deny the master who bought them. Those who understand and apply what Scripture teaches about Christ correctly, as the apostles taught, this is the life and death stuff, those people will be saved. And those who twist passages into destructive heresies, Christ-denying heresies, will be destroyed. Life and death, heaven and hell. Who says, one who says Jesus is, what one says, excuse me, about who Jesus is, is of utmost importance. It's at the heart of sound biblical doctrine that leads to salvation. Do they deny the master who bought them? Is Jesus Christ the second person of the Trinity? Is he Emmanuel, God with us? God come in human flesh? Was he born of the Virgin Mary? Did he live a sinless life? Did he willingly go to the cross and shed his precious blood, dying for the sins of humanity, purchasing and saving those who would trust in him alone? Did he rise again, proving his, proving his victory over sin and death? Or is he something else, something different, something less? If a pastor or a teacher, a group or a church denies any of these things, and, and there are others, then you know they're twisting Scripture to their own destruction. And Peter is warning his readers not to follow these false teachers into destruction. Don't let them entice you away from Christ. And he ends his letter by telling us how to defend against them. That would be great, right? There's going to be these false teachers. They're going to come with these destructive heresies. How, how, do, we, how do we resist them? 
That's our final point. Sanctification, our defense against lawless people. How do we avoid being swept away into destruction like the ignorant and the unstable who twist Scripture to their own desires? Verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that there are are those who twist Scripture, those who are seeking to lead you into destruction with them, take care. Take care that you're not carried away with error, with the error of lawless people, these false teachers, these scoffers that Peter has been putting forth. And lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our defense against the deception and destruction of lawless people, those who would twist the Word of God, involves growing in our faith. It involves being transformed by God, being sanctified, set apart by Him. And it's a twofold. There's two aspects to what we're to engage in. You could think of them as both the defense and the offense. First, defensively, we're sanctified by taking care, being aware, not losing the stability that we receive from the correct understanding of the Word of God. To hold on to what you have. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, be watchful, stand firm in faith, act like men, be strong, man up. Stand firm in your faith. Don't lose your grounding. Don't be enticed by these lawless people. Don't allow these false teachers to knock you down, to entice you and influence you away from Christ with their twisted Scripture. And how do we do that? Well, ask yourself, what gives you stability in your faith? What grounds you and keeps you from being blown over by every enticing wind that comes. Oh, that sounds good. I'll go that way. What stops you from doing that? The answer is knowledge, the knowledge of God. That's what Peter's been talking about throughout. Knowing, delighting, and meditating on obeying, applying the Word of God. Being grounded and rooted in the Word. Back to Psalm 1. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a A tree planted, grounded, established by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Our ability to stand firm against lawless people comes from God through his word. It comes from the knowledge of God, knowing God. So that's our defensive stance. We stand firm against lawless people of this world through a correct understanding of God, which He gives through His Word, the knowledge of God. And thus we're sanctified, set apart from the world, and firmly planted in the Word and the ways of God. And then second, offensively, we're sanctified by growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And this, I believe, is at the heart of Peter's message to us. If you can remember 10 weeks ago, if you were here, when we began this series on 2 Peter, I pointed out that the the letter begins and ends on the same note. And that note is the grace, is grace and knowledge. Grace and knowledge. I want you to see, I want you to see that again, how it sums up the main point of this letter. Verse 18 says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Then back at verse 2 of chapter 1, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, and of Jesus our Lord. 
The language is a bit different, but it seems the point is the same. Peter's desire for these people and for us is that we might experience God's grace in abundance. And as we experience this multiplied grace of God, it would cause us to be sanctified, to grow, to mature, to become more like Jesus Christ, to be transformed into the image of Christ. Now we've touched on the knowledge a little bit. Let me just focus on the grace. What does it mean to grow in grace? To have grace multiplied in our lives. In fact, uh, we could ask, what is grace? Paul says we're saved by grace through faith. We say grace is uh, God's favor given to those who haven't earned it and don't deserve it. And this is certainly true, but grace goes beyond our salvation. I think grace is the greatest resource God gives us to live our Christian lives. We're saved by grace and we are sanctified by grace. Some people don't understand this. They think, okay, I've saved by grace, now it's my turn and I'm going to go and do it. Not the thing. God is always the giver, we are always the receiver. God always gets the glory, the giver gets the glory. And we need to continually, continually receive the grace of God in our lives. That brings about sanctification. It happens by grace. John Piper says, Grace is the wealth of God's kindness, the riches of His mercy, the soothing ointment of His forgiveness, the free and undeserved but lavishly offered hope of eternal life. Grace is what we crave when we're guilt-laden. Grace is what we must have when we come to die. Grace is our only ray of hope when the future darkens over with storm clouds of fear. Grace is it the heart and soul of how God deals with a sinful people who come to Him in faith and repentance. And it's how He continues to deal with them as they continually come to Him in faith and repentance. And we're called to grow in grace. To grow in our ability to experience the abundant grace of God. To experience in all circumstances His kindness his mercy, His forgiveness, and so much more. And how do we receive this grace? Well, again, that's where knowledge comes. Grace and knowledge go together, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So we grow in grace, that is, grace is multiplied in our lives as we grow in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this takes us to the Word of God, to God's revelation of Himself to us. Through the Word, we grow in the knowledge of God. We come to understand who He is. We come to understand what He's done for us. We come to understand how He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Through the Word, we find not only what God has done for us, though, in the past, through Christ, but the Word of God is also where we find the knowledge of God's precious and very great promises. The Word of God tells us of the future grace that God will bestow upon those who trust in Him. We saw this last week as we looked at Christ's promised return on the day of the Lord. On that day, 
Not to be repetitive, but let's, I think reminders are good. We established that in Peter's writings. On that day, the heavens and the earth and the ungodly will be destroyed. And God will create and rule over a new heavens and new earth where those who trust in His promises, the promises of God that come through Jesus Christ, that's where we'll dwell. We saw how He'll wipe away every tear. He'll provide for every need. He'll heal every sickness. He'll bring us eternal joy and satisfaction. He'll do away with sin and give us a place where righteousness dwells. These are the promises of future grace. And if we could truly believe these promises, hold on to them, take them in, live based on them, if we could just believe in the grace-filled future God has for us, instead of clinging to the temporal things of this world, you know, our hands are just grabbing, then I believe we would experience the abundance of God's grace in new and greater ways. Our hearts would be freed from pride and greed and lust and fears that cause our sin. As Peter wrote way back in chapter 1, maybe the heart of the, the book, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to God, life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The message of Second Peter is that the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ fuels the grace of God in our lives and empowers us to live godly lives, to be sanctified, to confirm our calling and election, again back to chapter 1, to defend against lawless people. And so Peter concludes with these final words, and so do we. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Uh, that's a whole new sermon that I'll start now, and you guys can just bring out the food. No, just kidding. Peter signs off by pointing out the most important thing of all, that all we do in growing in grace, in growing in the knowledge of God, in learning and growing in our understanding of Christ and what He's done for us, all we do in living godly lives by His grace and power our salvation, the Scripture even, our sanctification, all of it is for the glory of God. Number one up there, by the way. To show forth His greatness, to bring Him glory. This is not about us. It's about Him. So bring Him glory both now and forever as we testify to His amazing grace in our lives. How through the knowledge of God... Revealed in His Word, He saved us and continues to sanctify us. Amen? Would you pray with me as Don and the ushers and the worship team come forward to lead us in communion? Father God, thank You for this time and for Your Word. Lord, I pray that for myself, I pray for each person here that we were stirred up. That we were stirred up by Your Word.
Lord, that we would remember it, that we would retain it, and that we have grown in the knowledge of you, that we would begin to experience more and more the grace that you offer, the grace not of this worldly things, Lord, but the grace of the infinite, of you in our lives, Father. Help us to know you better and be more like you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Oh, there you are. Where'd it go? So during communion, we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. It's something done by God through Jesus for us. Jesus' blood is the precious payment that satisfies God. We could only ask that this shed blood be applied to our lives. In fact, anybody could ask. John 1 says that to as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become his children. And Paul says in Romans 10 that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from the penalty of our sins. So, we're going to come to this table. Um, it's time to remember what was done for us. It was time to remember that we are not redeemed easily, to remember that the price paid to reconcile us to God was the blood of Jesus. So in a moment, I'm going to ask the ushers here to, to come forward and pass out the elements. And... I ask that you hold on to them, and we're going to partake of them together. And as you hold on to them, as you sit there, I just I ask that you talk to God. Just thank Him for what He's done for you, and ask Him what He wants of you. Many of us need to just rest in what God has done for us. And there's also many of us that need to stop resting and do what God has asked us to do. So just take this time and talk to God for a few moments as we pass out the elements.